Well, praise the Lord. I, I'm very excited about our Easter, our Easter week. We've got we've got so much uh, in store, and uh, yeah, it's it's going to be a lot of fun. When Mariah, she she left uh, yesterday during the the afternoon to come here to the office to start counting candy. Um, Joe, I don't know if you knew, uh, but including the jelly beans that are pre-wrapped in eggs, there's over 21,000 pieces of candy. Not 2,100, which would kind of be like a normal thing we would expect. 21,000 pieces of candy. Um, and so if there are any dentists in the room, <laughs> we're sorry. Um, all right. Well, praise the Lord. Hey, if you have your Bibles, pull them out to Ruth. Uh, we are concluding our series through the book of Ruth this morning, our series that we have titled Redeemed uh, as we are approaching the book of Ruth uh, and as we are looking at this beautiful story, this love story, this redemptive narrative, uh, today we are concluding this uh, story. If you're taking notes, the title of the message is super simple, The Conclusion. It seems fitting when we conclude that we just call it the conclusion. Uh, but by way of recap, um, and, and I really do want to recap everything, because today we're going to kind of take the book of Ruth, and we're going to abstract it a little bit, and we're going to look at a broader picture uh, that the book of Ruth really paints for us. Uh, but by way of recap, uh, six weeks ago, we started off with the introduction. We did the 30,000-foot flyover, and, and we looked at the themes that this book has, and we kind of prepared ourselves for some different narratives that we're going to occur throughout the story. But some things to remember, we, we saw that the book of Ruth really had themes of sovereignty, of, of redemption, of God's provision. And, and those three themes have kind of trickled their way through every stream of this story. Uh, the, the first message as we dived into it uh, was Ruth chapter 1, and it was a message that we had titled, In the Land of Moab, Love's Resolve. And we saw that uh, Naomi and her husband Elimelech and their sons Malon and Chilon, when things had got bad for them in Israel because there was famine, they traveled to the land of Moab, which was across the Jordan River, and they settled down in Moab. This was a place that was not the promised land of God, but it was a land that was promising in that they had food while Israel had famine. And so this family leaves the promised land of God to go to a land that is promising, and things got really rough. And there was loss, there was death, there was heartache. And as a result, at the end of chapter 1, we see Naomi and her daughter-in-law Ruth, who have nothing are making their way back to Israel to a little town called Bethlehem to see what God could do in and through their loss. Ruth chapter 2 was a message that we had titled in the fields of Boaz, uh, and this was love's response. We see Naomi and Ruth responding to what God was doing, providing an opportunity for there to be work for those who had nothing. And we're introduced to this character, Boaz, Boaz, who, as the story tells us, is the closest or the nearest of, of kin. He is someone who can save the family's name. He can reclaim what had been lost. Ruth chapter 3 was on the threshing floor of Boaz, love's request. We saw Naomi and Ruth, they put together a plan where they were going to 
ask Boaz to fulfill his role of the kinsman redeemer of the Goel, he who would come and restore that which had been taken, that which had been forfeit. And we saw this beautiful story unfold. And then last week, Pastor Dave spoke on Ruth chapter 4, which was in the home of Boaz, love's reward. We see Boaz come and fulfill his promise to Ruth there that he made on that night. The very next day, he goes to the town square and and he makes things right. And as a result, at the end of Ruth chapter 4, we see a genealogy that leads to a young child named David, who is the king that God had established for Israel and from his line, as Matthew chapter 1 will show us, Jesus comes. But what I want us to do this morning is I want us to take the book of Ruth as a whole and we're going to zoom back out. For the last four weeks we've been zoomed in on the narrative and on the story. But what I want us to do again this morning is to zoom back out. But we're not just going to be at 30,000 feet. We're going to zoom to the upper stratosphere and I don't know all the different spheres. But we're going to go to space. And we're going to view this story as though we are from the International Space Station looking down and Earth is the story of humanity. Because I believe that this book truly paints a picture, tells us the story, the greatest story ever told. Ruth is a story that seems out of place in the Old Testament narrative flow. It just sits right between Judges and 1 Samuel, which are two books all about wars and fighting. But we get this little love story in here. But when we understand the importance of the book of Ruth, we realize that it fits perfectly. And in this timeline of events, it, it gets us ready for uh, the, the line of David, the story of Messiah, Israel's history, and then ours as Gentiles, our history as well. Ruth is a story of loss and of heartache, of sovereignty and of planning, and of rectification and redemption, both for Jews and for Gentiles. I love this story uh, because it shows uh, how humanity plays out, um, and it also shows our history. So today what we're going to do is we're going to look at a systematic theology of man's loss and God's redemption. Uh, Starting all the way back at Eden, creation, Adam there in the garden, what God's plan was at Eden, how man failed. We're going to fast forward a couple hundred years to the life of Noah and the circumstances on the earth and how things got really bad and how God sent a flood to wipe it out and then how Noah's family was supposed to do something but maybe they didn't. We're going to look at Abraham and how God chooses this one man out of a whole civilization to be his representation. We're going to look at David, the king, the direct descendant of Boaz and Ruth. And we're going to look at Jesus, the greatest kinsman redeemer, the greatest Goel, our Messiah. But before we do that, I think it's important for us to uh, acknowledge that humanity is fallen. We were created perfect, but we messed up. Romans chapter 1 tells us that we were wise in our own eyes. So God allowed us to just entertain the debaseness of our own hearts. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we were dead in our sin and in our trespasses, but, but God, who is rich in mercy, he made a way for us to be right with him. Man messed up a lot, uh, but God fulfills his promise to restore. Let's unpack a little bit 
If you're taking notes this morning, I'm going to have six points. And they're all going to have reference to God's plan for everybody. The first of these points is God's plan for all Eden. Eden, as described in the book of Ezekiel, was not only a garden as we see in Genesis, but Eden is described as the mountain of God. So was it a garden? Was it a mountain? Was it a mountainous garden? Was it a gardenous mountain? All of the above, yes. The, the, the awesome thing I, I love about this is that in ancient Near Eastern culture, uh, the temples of the gods were decorated with garden scenery and, and were positioned on mountains. Many theologians and scholars say that when they look at the Garden of Eden, the fact that it was set up as a garden and that it was set up as a mountain in the book of Ezekiel are, are painting the picture that Eden was the temple of Yahweh on earth. And as such, he was there in the garden. His presence was there in the temple of God. And Adam, the first man created, was to be the high priest and the mediator between God and all of his offspring. Adam was called to subdue all of the earth, to be fruitful and to multiply, and to be there as the one who was mediating between God and man. In the Garden of Eden, there was perfect communion with God. Adam and Eve, they walked with God. I heard a joke and uh, uh, someone said, well, what's God's name? And uh, I said, well, the Bible has lots of names for God, Yahweh. Uh, and, and I listed some names and they said, no, God's name is Andy. And I said, Andy, what? I didn't see that. And he goes, oh, well, you know the hymn, Andy walked with me, Andy talked with me. Yeah, no? Okay. Yeah, it's a bad joke. <laughs> It's not as bad as my singing, but it's a bad joke. Uh, but God was there walking with Adam and Eve in the garden. They had perfect communion with God. But God had a plan for all. It was Eden. And that Eden would spread throughout all of earth. But man had a problem. And it was the fall of Adam. I've got a verse I want to throw up on the screen. This comes from the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 Reading from the ESV, it says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Adam was supposed to be the one who was proliferating good. God had called him to be fruitful and to multiply and to be in his presence. And God gave he and Eve one command, don't eat of the fruit. And we don't know the exact timeline of when it happened, but most theologians believe it happened very quickly. Adam and Eve were deceived by the serpent. The serpent um, probably isn't a zoological thing. It wasn't just a talking snake. We know from the rest of scripture that this was the adversary, the enemy of our souls, the devil, um, Satan, the accuser, uh, taking the form of a serpent, uh, and he deceived mankind into sin. As the result of a divine rebellion, Satan rebelling against God, it started a failure of mankind in Adam's fall. And as a result, sin has passed to all men. But God, who is rich in mercy, he had a plan. He wanted to see Eden fulfilled on earth. And so he didn't destroy Adam and Eve for their sin. He said, I'm going to cover you. 
And we see this beautiful picture. It's a sad picture, but a lamb killed there in the garden, and its skins were made into clothes to cover, to cover Adam and Eve. It's a picture of the cross where the lamb that was slain before the foundations of earth would die, and his blood would cover our sins. But Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden, but they were still allowed to live. And as a result, they had children, and their children multiplied over the face of the earth. To the time we get to a man by the name of Noah, who's the second in this story of redemption that I truly believe the book of Ruth typifies. Excuse me while I cough. <coughs> Excuse me. Mike, would you grab me a cup of water? You're a good man. Every once in a while my throat gets scratchy. But uh, so God has a plan for all, and it's Noah. And uh, at the time of Noah, wickedness was prevailing on the earth. Man was doing what was right in his own eyes. There was war, there was destruction, there was immorality, and it was spreading everywhere. But Noah was someone who was going to foreshadow hope. God was going to use Noah and Noah's family to bring hope to a lost world. They were to reconstitute the, uh, the, the, the call that was there in Eden, the Edenic call. Uh, Noah was saved on an ark. Animals were saved on the ark. His children were saved on the ark. And when the ark landed and the floodwaters receded, thank you, Mike, he was told to go into all the world and to be fruitful and to multiply and to bring the story, the goodness of God with him everywhere he went. But just as God had a plan for all, man had pride. And as a result, Noah's grandson, a guy by the name of Nimrod, uh, decided, hey, I don't want to be fruitful and multiply. I don't want to spread out across the earth. And he drew all men to one location. And he said, we're going to build a temple, and this temple is going to reach up to heaven, and we're going to touch God. As a result, God divided the peoples of earth uh, across all the globe. And uh, they, they were divided, separated from God once again. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8 and 9 says this. It says that God divided, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, he divided mankind. He fixed their borders, the, uh, the borders of the people, according to the numbers of the sons of God. But, remember God who was rich in his mercy, but Jacob is the Lord's portion, his allotted heritage. God has a plan and his plan is to re restore and redeem all. The next point, God's plan for all, comes through Abraham. Abraham is a young man in Mesopotamia, in, in Ur of the Chaldeans. His father is a man by the name of Terah. Terah coming from the Akkadian word teraphim, which are idols that were built and put in temples. It is interesting that God calls Abraham to leave his father's house to destroy the idols of his father. And he is called out from a pagan land to go and to start a new family in a new land. Yahweh promises Abraham that not only will his family be blessed, not only will his family be as numerous as the stars of the sky, the sand on the beaches, but that in him and in his seed, all of the nations of the world will be blessed. You see, God's plan at the beginning, Eden, was for everyone to be in right relationship and right communion with God. Adam and Eve messed it up. Fast forward, everything's really rough, and God's giving us a second chance. 
Noah and his family are righteous. They are the only righteous ones. And they are to survive the flood. And God is calling them to restore righteousness on earth. But we just get one generation away and they've messed it up again. God is now calling Abraham to start a new family. And for a time, as Deuteronomy chapter 32, which we just read, said, God divided the nations. But Israel was his. For a time, not everyone was going to be in right relationship and right communion with God. But for a time, Israel, the family of Abraham, one nation was going to be in right relationship, or supposed to be. Spoiler alert, they're not going to be. But one nation was to be in right relationship with God so they could point all people back to God and that through this family, all of humanity could be saved. God had a plan for all. It was Abraham and his family. And in God's providence, the Gentiles could be in the mix. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3 says this. It says, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We're going to skip over a lot. Um, Guys like... Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, 400 years of slavery, a guy named Moses, a guy named Joshua, the judges. We're going to skip all of that uh, just for time's sake because if we went through each of those, they are a part of the plan. But if we went through all those this morning, we'd be here till 4 o'clock tonight. Um, and we're not going to do that. But we are going to go a little bit long because five weeks ago, y'all said during the book of Ruth, I could go long, so I'm going to do it. So we're going to jump down to God's plan for all and King David. This is God's king. You see, back at the time of Judah, when Judah was, was the eldest of these sons, uh, Judah was promised that in his family, in his loins, there was royalty. But Judah messed up. You might know the story. We're not going to unpack it this morning, but Judah, through some events, Ends up uh, committing sin with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Some things happen as a result, and God says, uh, (coughs) Judah will be out of the assembly for ten generations. Israel gets restless through the time of the judges, and uh, they say, we want a king. And they want a king in what would have been the ninth generation, and they establish Saul, a Benjamite. But David was God's king. You see, David is exactly 10 generations. God knew his plan from the beginning. He knew that Jesus was going to come. He knew that Jesus' lineage was going to come from David. God had established that David would be the king of Israel, but Israel jumped the gun because they wanted their own way. It's kind of a picture of Elimelech and Naomi in the land of promise saying, hey, things are hard right now. We're going to jump to where they seem good. And they prematurely were looking for a promise. But here we are with David. He's God's king. He's a mighty warrior. But not only was he a mighty warrior, he was a witness to all those outside of Israel. Everywhere he went, he he went under the banner of Yahweh. He declared the goodness of God. He declared the goodness of the creator. So much so that later on in his reign, there were people from outside the kingdom of Israel who were coming to Israel for help, for hope, and for freedom. And David was able to witness to them and even lead guys like King Hiram to an understanding of the one true God. 
You see, God had a plan for all, and this plan was going to come through David. And God's promise was that Messiah is coming. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. Josh, if you throw that up on the screen, it says, In the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God was going to establish that from the lineage and the kingly line of David, there would be one who would sit on the throne of David forever. And that was to be Messiah. (coughs) If you're taking notes this morning, you would see that as I listed out the plan of redemption, uh, it ended with Jesus. There was five points, but I told you we'd have six. Well, I'm going to break Jesus into two points here. And the first is God's plan for all, and it's there at the cross. This is it. This is when the enemy is duped. This is where what has been lost, what has been taken, what has been destroyed is about to be redeemed. The cross is the killing blow. It's not necessarily the killing blow for hope, even though Jesus died, but it was the killing blow for the enemy's hold over humanity. So let's jump all the way back to Deuteronomy 32 that we referenced just a few moments ago. God had dispersed the nations. Israel was his allotted inheritance. The other nations were put under the rulership of others. But God was going to bring everything back. He was going to reconstitute his family. And the cross was the killing blow, and it's the very reason why Paul tells us in Corinthians that if the rulers of this world would have known This rulers there is the divine rulers, wicked forces, enemies of Yahweh. This is the same rulers that is referenced all the way back in Deuteronomy 32. If they would have known, they never would have crucified Jesus. Because this was the kill shot for their plan and their hold over humanity. God had a plan for all and it was through the cross. And God's perfection is displayed for us. In his anastasis. Anastasis is a Greek word. It's the Greek word that is rendered resurrection in the New Testament. And for all the Bible students of the room, you know that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. But in the second century BC, there were some scribes and scholars that came together in Alexandria that translate the Hebrew scriptures into Koine Greek, into a text known as the Septuagint. There's an interesting portion of scripture, it's Psalm 82. It starts out with God, the Most High, has taken up counsel with the gods. And it is in this counsel that Yahweh is excising judgment on unrighteous, unfaithful divine beings. The divine beings that he has set up to rule earth, those outside of Israel, Baal, Asherah, Marduk, All the false gods, Yahweh is excising judgment on them. And the last verse of this chapter says something, and it says something interesting in the Greek. This is what it says. It's up on the screen, Psalm chapter 82, verse 8. It says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Up until this point, Deuteronomy 32 was still in place. The nations belong to the sons of God. But Israel is God's portion. But it's foretold here in Psalm 82 that there would be an arising of God 
And through that rising, he would inherit all the nations again. That word arise there in the Septuagint is the Greek word anastasis. This verse can be read, resurrect, O God, and reclaim the nations. The beauty in the picture of this is that Jesus, what Jesus was doing there on the cross through his death, burial, and resurrection, he was redeeming all of the Gentiles back into the family of God. And this all comes to fruition in the final point, God's plan for all, the kingdom. Jesus was there preaching for three years that the kingdom of God was at hand, but that the kingdom of God was also here, and it was now. When he goes to Caesarea Philippi, there at the base of Mount Hermon, at, at, at what was known in that day of the gates of hell, Jesus says to Peter, who do men say that I am? Some say Elijah, some say the prophet. And Jesus says, Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter says, well, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds to him and says, Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not withstand it. Knowing the culture, knowing the understanding, Deuteronomy chapter 32 and everything that was referenced in there, all has its origin in the region of Bashan, Mount Hermon, where Jesus is, Caesarea Philippi, when he says this. Jesus is in the heart of the enemy's camp. And he says, the gates of hell will not withstand. I'm taking back what the enemy has stolen. And he was going to reconstitute the nations for Yahweh. God had a plan for all, and it was that the kingdom would extend beyond the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. And that's the church's purpose. That we are to go into all the world and to make disciples of every nation. You see, what was lost all the way back at point two with Noah and the generation right after Noah, the Tower of Babel, Nimrod, and they were dispersed. Genesis chapter 11 gives us the table of nations. And it lists out a whole list of nations. But guess what? In Acts chapter 2, we get a similar list of nations. Oh, the people group names have changed, but the regions are the same. And it was there that people from every single one of these regions that had been dispersed out we're no longer Yahweh's inheritance, are in Jerusalem. And on the day of Pentecost, as 120 disciples in an upper room start speaking in tongues, everyone thinks they're drunk. But then everyone in the crowd hears the gospel in their own language. And Peter says, this is what Joel prophesied. that The spirit of God would be poured out and that your young men and women would prophesy. Pentecost kick-started the reclaiming of the nations through the resurrection of Christ, and it's the purpose of the church to see it forth. So how does this all tie in? A systematic theology of separation and redemption. I'm going to invite Mariah to, to come back up to play some guitar, and she's going to close us in worship this morning. But we were all supposed to be a part of God's family, but Adam failed. Adam messed it up. As high priest, he dropped the ball. The generation after Noah failed their commission to go into all the world and to be fruitful and to multiply. And this failure of Adam, this failure of the generation after Noah, it's the perfect picture 
that Ruth distills down to a small story. Naomi, she lost her land. She lost her rights. What was rightfully hers, the hope and the, and the future was stripped away. So too hum- humanity's hope and future was stripped away. Yes, there was divine rebellion, but there was human failure. And this human failure throughout the story of Scripture is distilled down in the book of Ruth to living outside the promise of God. But just as Adam failed as high priests, and just as Noah's generations failed in their call and commission, Jesus succeeds as high priests. The book of Hebrews tells us that he is our mediator. He is the great high priest. And whereas Adam dropped the ball, Jesus, the second Adam from above, did not. And he rightly represented God to humanity. And he sacrificially represented humanity to God, taking our place on the cross. And like Noah's generations failed their call, the church from Pentecost till now is to complete our call. Noah's generation, it took them one generation from Noah and his kids to Nimrod for things to all go bad. We're sitting here today almost 2,000 years after Pentecost and I believe the church is still as strong as ever. And our purpose and our plan and our mission and what God has called us to is to go into all the world, to reclaim the nations. It's the plan that Jesus kick-started. And we see this typified in the book of Ruth with Boaz restoring that which was lost and bringing new family. Naomi's loss, Ruth's hope, God's plan, Boaz's faithfulness, this is the story of Ruth, a story of redemption. I'm gonna close with this. The plan and the story of Ruth and Boaz was foretold before the story even unfolded. I don't have time this morning to go to Genesis. And as we look in Genesis and we see Judah's genealogy, when we use equidistant numbering and lettering with the Hebrew language, we see the names of Perez, of Obed, of Jesse, and of David. 800 years before the story even unfolds, but it was foretold. And just like this story was foretold, so too was the story of Jesus and the redemption for all Gentiles. It was foretold. Throughout the Old Testament, there was hope for humanity. God's plan for Eden is still his plan. And the beauty is, as we go into all the world preaching the gospel, teaching people to observe the things which Jesus taught, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we see the kingdom of God expand. And the book of Revelation talks of the eschaton, the end of days, where heaven touches earth, where Eden is restored, the temple of God back on earth. And all humanity will be in right relationship with God. And that only comes through hope and faith in Jesus Christ. How do people know? Well, Paul tells us 
they'll know when we go. How will they hear? Well, they're healer. They will hear it when we speak it. And how will we speak it? Well, we've got to get up and go do it. Redemption has been given to us. Let's bring the hope of redemption to the world around us. Amen? Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand and we're going to pray. God, we thank you so much this morning for your word. God, we thank you for this story of Ruth, of Naomi and of Boaz, and a story of redemption. And how this story is really just a microcosm of the greatest story, the redemption of humanity, the restoration of the Edenic call, God with his people in his presence. God, we thank you for Jesus and the work that he did on the cross and through him we can have life and life to the fullest. God, we thank you that you prepared a way that if we believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, we are saved. God, we thank you for that salvation. We thank you for that redemption. And Lord, this morning, we pray yet again that you would be preparing our hearts. God, I pray that you would challenge us and that you would inspire us to step outside of our comfort zones, to share the hope that we have, to share the love that we've received, and to point people to you. God, as we gear up for a time in the calendar where much of the outside world will be cognizant of biblical things, the Easter week, God, I pray that we would seize this opportunity, that we would not be like the generations after Noah that failed in what they were called to do, but that we would be like the church there in the days of Pentecost, that we would not just see addition but we would see multiplication in the church. So God, we thank you, we worship you, we praise you this morning. In your son's wonderful, beautiful name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. <laughs>